We all owe them, but very few of us know them. They are the men and women of our military and first responder communities. And these are their stories. American Warrior Radio is on the air. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to American Warrior Radio. This is your host, Ben Bueller-Garcia. The first Industrial Revolution occurred in the late 1700s to early 1800s when we switched production from hand production to machines. Mass production of steel, the introduction of electricity, and mass production of automobiles began further revolutions. The advent of flight changed the way we travel and fight wars. Now, if you haven't been paying attention, we're in the midst of another revolution. Much of it is just now appearing in the public consciousness, but it's been occurring for a while now. Think about Alan Turing's machine in the Second World War. Early computers had a limitation. They could only execute commands and couldn't store them. But technology soon allowed computers to store more information and process it faster. In the 1980s, deep learning techniques opened the doors that computers could not only process information, but also to learn using the experience. Artificial intelligence. Personally, I find it scary. I was hoping our guest today would help soothe my concerns, but honestly, after reading his book, Four Battlefields, Power in the Age of Artificial Intelligence, I found myself more inspired, but also more frightened. Paul Shari served as a Special Operations Reconnaissance Team Leader in the Army's 3rd Ranger Battalion with tours in Iraq and Afghanistan. He then moved on to the Office of the Secretary of Defense, where he played a leading role in establishing policies on unmanned and autonomous systems and emerging weapons technology. He currently serves the Vice President and Director of Studies at the Center for New American Security. His award-winning book, Army of None, Autonomous Weapons in the Future War, was selected by Bill Gates as one of his top five books in 2018. Welcome to American Warrior Radio, Mr. Paul Shari. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Paul, I'm honest to goodness. I loved your book, um, but it just it scared the dickens out of me. <laughs> well... <laughs> It's scary stuff. It is. Um, we're seeing you know, remarkable progress in artificial intelligence. And there's a lot of great things that AI will bring to society, for improvements in medicine and transportation and other areas. But the book is about the darker side of AI. It's mm-hmm. about what we're seeing China doing, using AI for authoritarianism, to oppress its citizens. And it's about military AI and some of the developments there that could be promising or could be very dangerous. Now, Paul, how does an Army Ranger go from jumping out of perfectly good airplanes to the artificial intelligence background? Well, when I left the Army, I worked in the Pentagon in the Office of the Secretary of Defense as a policy analyst there. And I worked on emerging technology issues, working on drones and autonomous weapons. And then as we've seen the technology evolve, I've continued to focus on AI as an area that just is, you know, seeing tremendous growth. In my current role at the Center for New American Security, a think tank in Washington, D.C., that's where I've been focusing my attention. And tell us more about that organization. What is the mission of the Center for New American Security? We're a bipartisan Washington, D.C.-based think tank. We're focused on pragmatic and principled national security policy solutions. So we want things that are in U.S. national security interests uh, that are going to protect the United States and its allies and, and policies that work. We have experts that work on a whole wide range of issues, looking at the war in Russia, how to counter China, what our military should be investing in, uh, looking at economic security issues like competition over chips, for example. And with scholars coming on a wide range of topics, and you know, we're very interested in working with people on both sides of the aisle to help make that happen. The four new battlefields, if you will, that you cover in your book are data, computing power, talent, and institutions. I want to get into the, yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. 
and and I would definitely want to talk about the military applications because that's after all what our show's about. But as a civilian, there's some stuff in there that I I think really sent a chill up my spine. And it's kind of funny. You know, your book you mentioned a group uh, they're based in Boston is called Modulate, and they've apparently produced a software that in real time, so I could go on and, and in real time I'd be talking. And what's coming out the other end is a 15-year-old British girl. And my first reaction, Paul, was like, hey, that'd be great for radio. I don't need voice talent anymore. I can cut all my own commercials and uh, go that route. But then I started thinking about the dark side of that and how you know, there's this typical scam where someone calls and says, hey, it's your, you know, your grandson. I'm stuck in Mexico. You need to go to Walmart and get a gift card and, and send it to, to get me out of jail. So I guess the question directly to you, Paul, my voice is out there everywhere. People can find it online. Could someone actually duplicate that voice and, and make a call to my dad? Yes, if they wanted to, and it probably would not be that difficult to you from a technology standpoint. Now, right now, you'd need some degree of technical savvy to do that. You wouldn't need a lot of money or advanced computers, but you'd have to have some sense of what you're doing. But those tools are proliferating more widely, and so... Really, in a couple of years, a lot of the technology will be available to probably anybody who could plug in a couple minutes of audio clips and then synthesize your voice or really anyone else's voice, my voice included. And that's, I think, a scary world to be in. Because as you say, you know, we pick up the phone, you verify who you're talking to based on the sound of someone's voice. And there's going to come a point in time not too far down the road where we can't trust it anymore. It was actually already used in one scam and was used to defraud a company out of several hundred thousand dollars. Wow. I used to work with a group that worked with uh, homeless teens and street kids. They were some of the most vulnerable victims out there, particularly when it comes to traffickers. And in reading your book, I was thinking about that too. So many young people now are in these chat rooms or you know doing their online gaming and stuff. And with a tool like this, I could be a 60-year-old bad guy pretending to be a 13-year-old girl or boy or whatever. And uh, it's just, it, it's scary. Well, and that's one of the obvious, uh, very disturbing you know, use cases. And in fact, the company that I met that you mentioned there that I talked about in the book and I demoed some of their tools, they particularly for that reason have not trained children's voices and they're creating voice skins for gaming. So you could, you know, get online and you could use the voice of some avatar. It's just looking like some character. You could share the voice of this character but they're not allowing children's voices for that very reason. I was at a local sports event, and, of course, they've got these big signs posted when you go in and, and they pull your ticket and say, no cameras allowed. And I'm thinking, every single one of us is carrying a camera and a very powerful right. computer in our pocket or a purse right now. You know, you guys need to maybe catch up with the times a little bit. But in your book, you talk about 1.25 billion, billion with a B, smartphones that have an AI processor on board. That's right. We're seeing increasingly smartphones shipped with AI processors on board, and that's going to enable things like onboard image identifications. You can point your phone at an object, and your phone will be able to identify what it is. Facial recognition, so your phone can identify people's faces, including your own. And a lot of that processing is already done now out on the cloud. So, you know, if you upload pictures, oftentimes the company you're uploading it to will have the ability to identify faces and say, Oh, you know, someone's put up this picture on Facebook that's got your, you know, you're in it. But increasingly, we see those tools out at the edge of computing on your personal device. And then from a military standpoint, that also is going to enable 
the military, as you see more miniaturization, to start embedding some of these AI tools right at the edge of the battlefield as well. Well, in the next segment, I want to talk about, you know, we're raised, everything is a tool. You know, a, a chainsaw is a tool. A weapon is a tool. It can be used for good purposes or bad purposes. And, and I think I got the sense coming from your book that that's kind of how you feel about AI. We just had the founder of a company called Zero Eyes on the show several weeks ago, and I don't know if you're familiar with them, but it's a group of former Navy SEALs and other special operators that have developed AI technology that overlays security cameras, and it can identify an alert to a weapon in three to five seconds. And so that's a good thing. The faster we can identify a bad guy at a school or someplace, the faster the police can respond and, and the more lives are saved. But the opposite is also true, and when we come back from the break, I want to talk a little bit about the Chinese are doing with that sort of stuff to to really subjugate and and, and um, put their people in a, a very bad spot. A- am I worrying too much, Paul? <laughs> well, I think China's development using AI for facial recognition and other tools to track and monitor citizens are very disturbing, and we're starting to see the export of some of that outside of China as well, and it's definitely something that we want to try to understand and push back on when we think about ways to protect human freedom. Ladies and gentlemen, visit paulshari.com. That's S-C-H-A-R-R-E.com. Uh, look at both his books. I, I haven't read the, the first one, Paul, but definitely definitely got a lot out of your book, Four Battlegrounds. I encourage anybody who's concerned about this, whether you're in the military vein or not, to, to check it out and read this. You can find this podcast and over 500 others at AmericanWarriorRadio.com. Please share these important messages with your friends. We're also on all the streaming platforms. Uh, whatever you choose to use, you can find American Warrior Radio there. We'll be back with more with Paul Surrey in just a second. Welcome back to American Warrior Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, there's your host. We're talking with Paul Shuri. He's the author of a new book, relatively new book out called Four Battlegrounds. Uh, it's a fascinating read, a little bit scary. It talks about power in the age of artificial intelligence. Paul, I think we're, you know, seems like we're falling up on the good versus evil vein here. But the the battlegrounds that you mentioned, a lot of them aren't just software. It involves hardware. And when you think about the Chinese and what we're doing right now, my big concern has been Taiwan. And you cite the figure that the U.S. accounts for 47% of global semiconductor sales, but only 12% of chip manufacturing. If the Chinese were to take Taiwan, what would be the ramifications of that? I mean, they could literally shut the world's economy down, couldn't they? Well, the ramifications for the chip industry would certainly be catastrophic. Uh, because even though the U.S. accounts for 12% of chip manufacturing, the U.S. has none of the most advanced chips, and 90% of those are made in Taiwan. And so Taiwan is really the Saudi Arabia of semiconductors. And, of course, its location 100 miles off the coast of China, when the Chinese Communist Party has pledged to absorb Taiwan by force if necessary, is a real geopolitical concern. Now, the U.S. has been working, of course, to shore up Taiwan's defenses. I mean, there's lots of reasons to care about the defense of Taiwan. They're a free people who are resisting subjugation from an authoritarian uh, government that wants to overtake them. You know, from a geopolitical standpoint, even if the chips were not an issue, there's a, a lot of really important reasons why the U.S. should be best at Taiwan's defense. 
But the chip certainly heightens that concern, and the effect of the global economy would be absolutely massive. What is your sense of, I mean, do our elected leaders get this, Paul? I mean, you can't just build a fabrication plant in, you know, three months and plunk it down and be producing chips. And to me, I just, it's unconscionable that some of the key elements that go into our advanced weapon systems, we don't have full control of that supply chain. Well, it's a real challenge. Of course, we've seen the U.S. and Chinese economies become increasingly integrated over the last couple of decades. And frankly, as part of an explicit U.S. policy of engaging China that goes back over several administrations, both Democrat and Republican, and that in retrospect looks like a pretty egregious strategic mistake, and one that we're now seeing Washington try to correct, starting in the Trump administration, continuing through the Biden administration. We've seen uh, the U.S. government begin to reverse course, looking for ways to de-risk the U.S.-China relationship, finding ways to disentangle some of our supply chains. But it's hard to do. There's some heavy costs in doing that. And there are going to be some areas where it's going to be challenging and it's going to be costly to try to make that happen. In in what way? I mean, just it always kind of of made me smile. There's a a couple of chip plants, I want to say, in the Phoenix area. And as I understand it, that manufacturer requires a heck of a lot of water. And it's like, well, why did you put them in the desert? But is it is it just does it all come down to dollars and will? Well, money is a big part of it. We've seen the U.S. government make a massive investment uh, very recently in the Chips and Science Act, two hundred eighty billion dollars, uh, about fifty billion dollars to look to chips themselves. So that's going to play an important role. But it's more than just that. Human talent is also really important. So we're going to build these fabs here in the United States, these fabrication plants to build chips. We also need engineers here. And we don't have a lot of those top engineers here. The talent has moved overseas in the last couple of decades, as we've seen the leading edge manufacturing go to Taiwan and Korea. And then a lot of the top talent in the United States goes into software. People are building apps instead of getting a PhD in uh, electrical engineering and working on chip design, for example. And so that's going to be actually a big challenge, I think, for the United States as we look to reshore some of the semiconductor manufacturing is on the talent side. Paul, you mentioned in your book that a lot of the talent in the AI battle space is coming from China. And I didn't know quite how to take this. You said many of these folks then stay here in the United States and, and develop their craft. I guess I could see that as a good thing, but in this current state of conflict that we're in with China, how do we trust them? Well, what's remarkable here is China's producing more AI scientists than any other country in the world, but they don't stay in China. And in fact, they tend to come to the United States. Um, over half of China's top undergraduates studying AI come to the U.S. for graduate studies. And then 90% of them stay in the U.S. after graduation. And that's a huge advantage for the United States because those are top talented scientists and engineers that get to then work at U.S. universities and at U.S. companies instead of working in China. And the fact that the U.S. is a draw for talent from China and around the world is a huge advantage for the U.S. Now, there are issues of intellectual property staff and academic espionage mm-hmm. that we've got to pay attention to. We've got to crack down on those. But we don't want to, you know, close our gates to those scientists because if they go back to China, if they stay there, that's going to be a major advantage for the Chinese. I, if I was, I spent some time in China when I was in my previous life uh, on trade missions. And one of my frustrations with the United States is we tend to think in terms of election cycles and the Chinese think in terms of generations. And 
you know, I could conceivably see Paul saying, okay, let's educate, train all these people, send them over to the U.S., they all get great jobs, and then guess what? One day, 30% of the United States workforce gets on a plane and flies back to China. Now, you know, what would be the impact of that? Yeah, well, I think that's a, that's a good reason why we want to draw that talent here. We want to keep them here because those are, uh, you know, we want those best and brightest minds from around the world, to China, coming to the United States, that they do the brain game for us. It's a brain drain for China. They know it's a concern. Uh, certainly, if our top scientists and engineers were leaving the U.S. to go to China, we'd be really worried about that. And so I think, you know, that's something that we, it's a good point. We want to keep them here and then find ways to make it easier for people to come uh, from abroad and stay here. You know, I, I tend to try and be an optimist, Paul. I, I don't want to be bringing the conversation down. We've got a guest coming up soon on American Warrior Radio who, who just wrote a book. He's uh, was born and raised under the socialist communist regime in Poland. Uh, eventually came out as a political refugee and eventually joined the Navy SEALs. And he is one of the most patriotic people you'll ever meet in your life. And he described how in Poland at that time, most of the population chafed under that yoke. They were not fans, they didn't support it, and that's why the revolution went relatively well. Uh, do you have any insight as far as the Chinese? Uh, do they, I've got to wonder if they, they see this as really their way out and they adopt their new country and they're going to become real patriots or... Is that a little too deep of a dive? I mean, I think I'm sure it depends on the individual. And it's certainly my observation has been over the years that some of the people I've met that are most patriotic, like your friend that you mentioned, are immigrants that come from abroad. So it's easier to appreciate something when you've had to work hard to get it, right? When people have had to take risks and make sacrifices in their life to come here. You know, I was born here in the, in the U.S. Maybe I take it for granted. Mm -hmm. If I came from somewhere else and had to you know, work hard to get here, maybe I'd appreciate it more. So I think that there's, there's an element of that, but of course it varies by person. Paul, in your book you mentioned that something called the National Defense Education Act that would help address the, the talent issue. Is that actually in the hopper somewhere? Is that on paper somewhere? Is somebody in positions of power actually discussing something like this? Well, there have been proposals about ways to improve education and immigration reform to boost talent here in the U.S. I don't know that we've seen a lot of progress on, but it's certainly important when we start thinking about how do we make sure that we're staying at the forefront of this talent competition. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your host, Ben Garcia. We're talking with Paul Shirley. His book, Four Battlegrounds, Power in the Age of Artificial Intelligence, I highly recommend it. It is a great, if not a little bit frightening read. You can learn more. Visit paulshirley.com. That's S-H-A-R-R-E. When we come back, we'll talk more about some of the disadvantages uh, that are inherent, unfortunately, in a free society like ours. Stick around. Welcome back to American Warrior Radio, ladies and gentlemen. This is your host, Ben Buehler-Garcia. We're talking with Paul Shurry. He's got a book out called Four Battlegrounds. He's an artificial intelligence expert, and it's just a really, really um, intriguing read, Paul. Lots of things that people outside of your specialty probably don't think about on a day-to-day -day basis, but, I mean, we're carrying computers with potential facial recognition technology in our pockets. We've got people that are driving smart cars now that can, you know, park themselves and hopefully go down the street without hitting someone. So it's all around us. One of the battlefields you talk about, or one thing my takeaway from the book was there's some, obviously in a free society like ours, 
there's lots of advantages. But the bureaucracy in our nation that has to get engaged in developing some of these new technologies is like turning an aircraft carrier. It is so darn slow. Whereas in communist China, they if they tell you to do it, boy, you, you hop to it and you get it done. Well, and that was one of the things that was remarkable to me is looking at this competition between the U.S. and China. What I found was that in there are so many areas that the U.S. has huge strengths. You know, when you look at what chips, the chips are, even though they're made in Taiwan, for example, a lot of the underlying technology comes from the U.S. or from our allies in Japan or the Netherlands. From a talent standpoint, the U.S. has huge advantages over China. People want to come to the U.S. that they're leaving China, but the bureaucracy continues to get in the way here in the United States, particularly for the military. And that's a real problem when you think about the U.S. adopting AI. If you go back a couple of years ago, there was a push by some tech employees at Google and Amazon and Microsoft who didn't want to look at the military. And they wrote open letters and they protested. In the case of Google, that actually led Google to discontinue work on one military project, Maven, one of the first AI projects that the military had. But if you fast forward a couple of years, all those companies are still working with the military, including Google. The obstacles are not this sort of divide between Silicon Valley and the Defense Department on a cultural level. That turns out to be really not much of a problem. It's the government bureaucracy. It's all the red tape and the contracting and procurement systems that are slowing things down and are really lethal to innovation. And tell us a little bit more about Project Maven. I'd never heard of that before I read your book. So Project Maven was one of the Defense Department's first projects to harness some of the AI tools coming out of the deep learning revolution, which started in 2012. And one of the things that AI is very good at is object identification. So you can take images of various objects. You can train neural networks, sort of connectionist paradigm of the AI system is they have all these different connections and information flows through this network. And then they can look to identify these neural networks that can look to identify objects. Well, that's great for things like self-driving cars. It's also really valuable for the military for sifting through satellite images and drone video feeds. And so this is one of the first military projects was to use this technology. They used it to process imagery coming off of drone video feeds to help speed up the, the information management process. Right now, that's very human-intensive for the military. We've got a lot of people, a lot of human eyeballs watching drone video feeds, and it doesn't scale well. People are really expensive, and so that, that's an area where AI could potentially play a really valuable role, and it's a place where now we've seen over the last couple of years that's continued to be integrated to the military and is being used today. One of the things that frightens me, Paul, is, is the idea of complete autonomy. When I was being in college, probably before you were born, and we were being trained on Fortran, which I don't think is even used anymore, but you know, there's always that phrase, garbage in, garbage out. And when right. Zero Eyes was trying to develop their database for their AI, they scraped every image of every weapon they could find off the Internet, and they found that that just didn't work very well. So they actually went out there to locations with you know carrying actual weapons and had to give the basis to their AI to actually train itself as to what you know, what's a weapon and how to define between a, an AR and a, and a Nerf gun. But in their process, once the, the AI identifies a potential threat, the next step in that chain is always a human. It's a trained professional, a law enforcement person or military person that takes a look and said, yes, this is real. It's not a false positive. 
how close are we to that, if you can say, in the military applications? I, I, have, I want to assume there's still humans in the chain there somewhere. There are today still humans in the chain, but I think we're continuing to see, particularly in the war in Ukraine, that operational pressures in that war are pushing militaries, particularly Ukraine, which is a very innovative and drone and AI technology, closer and closer to this line where you begin to cross now, machines start making decisions on the battlefield about which targets to attack. And so we've already seen the deployment of AI-powered drones in Ukraine that can identify objects and the human can choose the object, say, okay, go and attack this vehicle, for example. And then while the drone is zooming in to execute the attack, if they lose communications with the human controller, the drone can still follow and track this object. And that's all very doable. That's been fielded today. So that's really different, changing a couple lines of code to go from that to a drone that could go out on its own and then find targets and attack them. The technology is available, and I suspect it's probably not going to be that long before we start to see it used in combat. That's, again, what frightens me, Paul, is it's one thing to say, okay, drone, here's your mission package, go find this thing and blow it up, versus, I ah, just go fly around this area and, and you decide what to blow up. Well, I think it is a big difference. It, it is. And, you know, a lot of the decisions that people make in war are not just, oh, this is a certain object, oh, this is a rifle, this is a, a tank. It's based on context. Okay, well, who's holding the rifle? Is that a fight Is it an enemy? You know, is this person trying to surrender? Is it tactically sound at this moment to, you know, blow your cover and, and, and engage? Maybe you're still sneaking up on the enemy. I mean, there's a whole host of other decisions that come to bear that machines right now just don't have the ability to see that bigger picture. They don't have the ability to see the context. And that's a big limitation for machines. So that's a good reason why humans should still be involved in I, I couldn't agree with you more. I'd, I'd talk a lot with Air Force people, and you know, many have told me that the F-35 is going to be the last manned fighter aircraft. And I stomp my feet and, and you know, grind my teeth and say, "No, I always want a human in the cockpit." I know there's a higher risk there, but I just I want that circuit breaker, if you will, that human circuit breaker that can con- consider that context that you're talking about. But let's go back a little bit because one of the things I found very interesting revealing your book. You talked about a World War II mindset, but you propose or say that the metrics of military power have really changed in the digital age. Well, look, it's pretty interesting. If you ask the military what they need, they talk to you in these very industrial age metrics. So the Navy will say they need 255 ships. The Air Force will say they need 386 operational squadrons of aircraft. They're counting aircraft, like physical platforms. The Army says they need 500,000 soldiers. So they're actually using a pre-industrial metric of just, like, humans. But these are not really the things that we care about. We care about a success on the battlefield, and having a certain number of airplanes or people or ships is important. What matters more is what's on those airplanes and ships, what radars and missiles, sensors and communication networks, but we tend to not count those the same way. And so, you know, the industrial era saw during the Industrial Revolution that the key metrics of power changed. For militaries, we shifted from counting people to also counting tanks and aircraft and ships. For countries, when we started thinking about national power, we had to start looking at things like coal and steel production, uh, manufacturing capacity. So what is that in an age of AI? And one of the things the book talks about is looking at data, computing hardware, human talent, as some of these key metrics of national power 
in an age of AI. And so the military, we have to start changing how we think about military power as well if we're going to be effective in the conflicts ahead. How do we even quantify that? Is there a database somewhere of the number of processors in the 50 states? You know, people are actually working on tracking the most advanced processors. So the you know, most cutting-edge chips that are being cranked out of fabs in, in Taiwan, like NVIDIA, GPUs that are being used for AI, and where are these going? Who's going to have access to them globally? I think an important metric of thinking about national power in the age of AI, right now, we're able to track these, we'll have a good sense of where they are, who has them, uh, but it is a, a pretty valuable way to think about, you know, just like an industrial revolution manufacturing capacity could then be harnessed for different things. Here we're talking about computational capacity okay. and how that AI hardware can be used for different applications. Well, you're making me feel a little bit better, Paul. <laughs> we're talking with Paul Shari. He's an AI expert, a former Army Ranger. Stick around. We'll be back with more. Welcome back to American Warrior Radio, ladies and gentlemen. This is your host, Ben Bueller Garcia. We're talking with Paul Shuri. He's got a book out called Four Battlegrounds, Power in the Age of Artificial Intelligence. A fascinating, fascinating read. I encourage you to read it, even if you're not involved with the military, because this is impacting all of our lives. Paul, one of the things that kind of made me chuckle about your book, and we talked about garbage in, garbage out before, there was a test that was conducted with a battle bot, whatever you want to call it, and they challenged these eight Marines, and they put this robot out there and said, okay, whoever can approach that robot and touch it, lay a finger on it, you win the competition. And at first it seemed kind of daunting, but Marines being Marines, all eight of them succeeded. Tell us how they did that. And this was one of my favorite stories when I was researching where DARPA had trained this AI system to detect people walking. And so then after a week of training on this AI, they kind of flipped the script and they told the Marines to try to defeat this AI system and to approach it without being detected. So some of them somersaulted for 100 yards to get close to it. And the AI system couldn't see them because it wasn't trained to detect people somersaulting, only people walking. Another one hid under a cardboard box and scooted up on it. And a person would see a cardboard box moving its around with somebody underneath there. AI system wasn't trained to look for moving cardboard boxes. And then one other marine, a field strip a tree and just covered himself in branches and approached the AI bot that way. And so it just, I think it's a great illustration of the way in which these AI tools, sure, they can be powerful sometimes, but they're also very brittle. And they get easily defeated by people being clever, being creative. And it's a real challenge on the battlefield because when we're using these tools, we're going to go up against an adversary that is creative and adapting. And that, you know, to your point earlier about keeping humans in a loop, that's a good reason to keep humans involved. So when somebody finds a way to trick your AI, there's a human there who's also paying attention. Let's talk a little bit about, I don't know if it's darker, but some people have referred to is, as the Trojan horse of our age. You know, we talk about drones and, and battle bots, but software and, and propaganda and TikTok. Yeah, well, certainly there's, a, there's quite a bit of concern in Washington and I think other quarters as well about the 
fact that right now in TikTok, we have a major social media platform in the United States that's controlled by Chinese company ByteDance that's ultimately beholden to the Chinese Communist Party. And it's just because of the nature of the political economy in China that if the government tells ByteDance, hey, you have to do this, there is no recourse. The company can't appeal to the court of public opinion. They can't go to an independent judiciary and file lawsuits against the government. And so I agree with what we've heard from a number of members of Congress that we should see the government force a divestiture or sale of TikTok from ByteDance. Because uh, I think it's a real concern, and it's what we need to pay attention to going forward. You know, who's controlling our information and making sure that we're not having our major channels of information, whether it's cable news or social media or, or some other type of platform, radio, controlled by a hostile foreign power, is absolutely critical to American freedom and national security. I think, again, my, my brain's wandering way out there, but... Given the current tensions in our nation, Paul, I could conceivably see, in, in my next thriller novel, I produce a 100% completely AI video of the commander-in-chief, you know, saying, okay, we're going to bomb Russia, and I load that up on social media. And that's going to spread like wildfire around the globe before anybody can really do anything about it or deny it. That conceivably could happen? Well, I've already started to see those deep fake videos being used for political manipulation on international events. There was one last year during Russia's invasion of Ukraine early on that a video came out of Ukrainian President Zelensky telling Ukrainians to lay down their arms. Now, that was very quickly debunked, um, and it wasn't very credible for a couple of reasons. One, it wasn't a very good video, so anybody who was paying attention could see it didn't look very realistic. He was a very public figure who we have lots of other videos of him out there. And it wasn't consistent with the kinds of things that you might see in that. But I think this is a real concern. We're heading into another election cycle here in the United States next year. And so as we see uh, both you know, globally, this concerns about disinformation, and as we just move into you know, heated political campaigns, are we going to see more instances of either there's manipulated video or audio that comes out? Yes. Absolutely. We've already seen some. I think we're going to see more. We also could see instances of things that are true that people then deny. What some scholars have called the liar's dividend. People could say, all right, what me? That's fake. And I think we're already seeing that as well, too. And so that's sort of throwing gasoline and already just a really, a really problematic information ecosystem where there is a lot of disinformation out there. Has China reached parity with us in technology yet? Well, they're getting close. Depends on the technology. In some areas... 5G wireless technology, for sure, biotechnology, in some ways they're ahead of the United States. And then there are other areas like in chip manufacturing where they're pretty far behind. But in AI, China is a global leader on AI. They're, they're roughly equal to the United States. China said they want to be the global leader in AI by 2030, and I take them pretty seriously at that goal. You, in your book, you also added a kind of scary reference. I think what I took from it is they lead the world in deployment of these kinds of technologies, correct? Yeah, it depends a little bit on, like, you know, sort of AI is a very broad area. So what exactly are you measuring? So some of the most cutting-edge AI systems like ChatGPT are coming out of U.S. labs. Chinese labs are not far behind. They're 18 to 24 months behind. Then when you look at deployment and things like facial recognition, China's way ahead. So China has half of the world's 1 billion surveillance cameras. That's my concern, Paul, is that they're, they're actively out there field testing this stuff. And you have uh, you discuss in your book about how we cheated. I'll use that term advisedly, but 
when they were developing the F-35 and the Osprey. And, you know, they cut corners because they wanted to rush those things into production, into service. And it cost people their lives. That's one of the things I took away from your book because it scares me is that the the Chinese are leading the world out there in using this stuff and improving it and testing it. Let me add, I've spent a lot of the day beating up on China. What Who else is out there that we should worry about? Are there some other not necessarily near-peer competitors like our friends in Iran? Well, in terms of you know, global powerhouses, I think in AI, China is a big one to be concerned about. But I think we also should be concerned about the widespread proliferation of AI technology and ways that that could be used for harm by anyone. So a lot of these tools like GPT-4, the successor to ChatGPT, and other large language models or generative AI models, they're very general purpose. So they can be used to write a screenplay. They can be used to write a business letter. They can also be used to generate code, which can be used for software applications or for cyber attacks. They've been used in scientific experiments, potentially good ones, but also bad ones for synthesizing chemical or biological weapons. And so as these tools become increasingly available to anyone, they sort of lower the bar to people carrying out chemical or biological or cyber attacks. And that's a very troubling development. Well, we've only got a couple minutes left, but I want to explain, I think probably one of the most frightening phrases in your book that I came away with was a, a phrase called race to the bottom. Explain to us really quickly what you meant by that. Well, one of the big concerns is that given some of these challenges and add the brutalness that I talked about, that people engage in a race to the bottom on safety, that rather than take the time to test AI systems to make sure that they're safe before they're deployed, there's this incentive to get things out to market. That's true in the private sector, and it's also true among government. So that we could see, for example, the Chinese-American military saying, hey, look, you wouldn't have time to test. Just get this thing out there. And that's a really troubling development because that, that does risk accidents that could cost lives, that could cause major geopolitical incidents. We're actually already seeing this among private companies in the United Just in the last six or nine months, we've seen Microsoft, Google, OpenAI all rush to put AI systems out the door and, and deploy them out to the public. In many cases, before they were ready, before they've been fully tested, and then there have been some accidents with those. Now, ones that are causing huge amounts of harm yet, but it does show some of this dynamic already starting to play out. Would you say, is it fair to say that we're in the middle of a global AI weapons race? Well, I wouldn't say the word an arms race, because really most of the investment, most of the progress that now is happening on the commercial side, are we in a technology competition, a technology race? I'd say absolutely. So it looks a lot like maybe the space race. It's being driven by private companies instead of the government. But, you know, in, in the space race, it was a dual-use technology that had obvious military applications, but also was fundamentally a competition in the technology itself to then get ahead. And that's a lot like what we're seeing in AI today. Paul, thank you so much for spending your time with our American Warrior Reader listeners. Uh, fascinating, very enlightening. And, uh, folks, I encourage you to read the book for Battlegrounds. You can find it at paulsharry.com, S-C-H-A-R-R-E.com. Uh, thanks again, Paul. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Ladies and gentlemen, I tell you what, if you're not convinced yet, go to Google and and look up Soviet perimeter device just to get an idea of what we're talking about. Once again, you can find this podcast and over 500 others at AmericanWarriorRadio.com. Please share these important messages with your friends and your colleagues. Until next time, all policies and procedures are to remain in place. Take care. You've been listening to American Warrior Radio. 
Archived episodes may be found at AmericanWarriorRadio.com or your favorite podcast platform.